Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the fine folks at Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia, from which all of these panels were recorded at Metatopia 2017. It's also thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 181, The Shape of Your Game, presented by Peter Hayward. Okay. Hey, now you've been doing this. Okay. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm from Jellybean Games. We publish uh, little games for families, games that parents can enjoy with their kids. Kids can play with each other without parents needing to run it for them. And the games that are deep enough that parents can play it with each other after the kids have gone to bed. Uh, and I'm going to talk about the shape of your game. So every game has a shape, beginning, middle, end, turns, rounds, phases. There's a bunch of different ways you can break it down. But the thing that I want to talk about is I go to I go to a bunch of cons and I play literally hundreds of prototypes every year. I'm constantly playing prototypes. And the number one thing that I look for, the number one thing that makes me like want to continue playing your game and want to get your game is downtime. This machine here, I don't know if you've seen one of these, they're very new and fancy. This contains my family who are all in Australia. This contains my entire job because I work from home. This contains my best friends. This contains my employees. This contains the internet. And the internet, if you haven't seen it, has got everything ever. Your game needs to compete with everything ever to hold my attention. And games do. Like there are, there are fun games that I will play and I will not even go near my phone. Uh, there are more games coming out every year. Get, the market is crazy saturated at the moment. There are, there are hundreds and hundreds, like you go on Kickstarter and there will be at least two or three releases every day. It's crazy how many games are coming out. And they're getting better. Games are more and more like designed to hold your attention and to, and to get you invested and to make you engaged and to make you play that and not pay attention to everything ever instead. As well as that, there are more designers every year. There's thousands, like you've, you've been here, presumably, because you're here. There's, this is packed full of people, not only people who have been designing for, for decades, but full of like so many people who this is the first time. So you need to compete with everything ever, and your game needs to compete with the hundreds of new games that are getting better and better and better. Like Twilight Imperium, Twilight Imperium 4 just came out, which many people have described as better than Twilight Imperium 3, which they considered to be a perfect game. We're at the stage now where people are improving on a perfect game and there's more designers. If you want to get your game made and you want to get it published and you want me to play it, you need to make it as good as the stuff that's coming out now or better. And that means making me want to do it instead of interacting with everything ever. And that mostly means eliminating downtime. My favorite thing to do at a con is to pick up my phone and realize that I have three hours worth of emails. Because I've been engaged in your game so much that I haven't, we all do it. You pick up your phone, you're like, oh, a new email, that's interesting. I really, really get excited when I play a prototype that lets me actually play the game. (laughs) If your game is good, which aim for a good game if possible, 
If your game is good and enjoyable, let people play the game. Downtime is me sitting back and not playing the game. Try to eliminate that. So I'm going I'm to talk a little bit about downtime here. There's, uh, there's four main things that contribute to downtime. The first is analysis paralysis. If you haven't heard that term, it's when someone is like, oh, there are infinity options. I need to mentally work through what they all are before I can take the optimal route. Or just as common, I don't know what I'm trying to do. I don't know what I should be doing. I don't know why I care. Second thing is not letting people plan ahead at all. If on my turn, let's say I finish my turn, I'm playing a five player game. By the time it gets back to me, I know that the board is gonna be so different and so crazy and so new that I can't even start to be like, what do I do next turn? I don't know. If I have to wait for it to come to me before I can even start making decisions, then that's gonna, that's gonna cause me to downtime. When it's not my turn, why do I care? What can I possibly be doing? Uh, third one is when I don't care what you're doing on your turn. If your turn is important to me, I'm not gonna be on my phone. I'm gonna be watching and being like, oh, is he gonna do it? Is he gonna trade those forward for sheep? I really need to know. Uh, whereas if I don't care about your turn and I'm not planning my next turn, or I'm waiting for someone, if I've already planned my next turn, the next person's taking forever for theirs, that's downtime. The last one, and this is probably the most common one I see, is long turns. On your turn, first of all, you draw your four cards. Then you go through phase one of your turn. Then you go through phase two, then phase three, then phase four. Finally, you do your reset, and then it's the next person's turn, and they do all of that. If I, like, when I'm doing it, great. I'm playing your game. I want to be playing your game. When other people are doing it, what am I doing? I'm sitting there waiting to play your game. So these are the four main causes of downtime. And so I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to talk about the shape of your game and how you can shape your game to avoid downtime. So let's look at the first one. Analysis paralysis. Like I said, this is when you don't know what to do. One thing that, I'm, I'm gonna use a lot of generalizations just because that's the way I talk. When I say all games, I don't literally mean every game ever made. I mean the type of game that I'm talking about that does this well. All games have short-term goals and long-term goals. Uh, for instance, the game, uh, has, has everyone played Patchwork? I wanna use examples that people know. Um, what, what, what's, has everyone, hands up if you've played Patchwork. Okay, not Patchwork. Uh, hands up if you played Settlers Guitar. Great, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use Settlers Guitar for as many examples as I can. I'm sorry, sir. That's okay. I cannot help you. Um, Settlers Guitar has long-term goals, which is you wanna win the game, you wanna get your 10 victory, 10 victory points? Yeah, you wanna get your 10 victory points, you wanna do that by doing stuff. As well as that though, it has short-term goals. If my goal, if, if Settlers Guitar was just win the game getting 10 victory points every turn, I'd be like, I don't know what to do, I could do anything. Instead, they have little recipes. In Settlers Catan, you want to build houses. Houses build specific combinations of resources, so you want that combination of resources so you can build a house. That's a short-term goal. If I have a short-term goal, I'm not going to be like, I can do anything in this game. I'm going to do, I don't know what to do. Instead, I'm going to be like, okay, I want to build a house. I need these ingredients. That's a short-term goal, which gets me towards my long-term goal. Does that make sense? Uh, another way to prevent analysis paralysis is to hide future information. Uh, there's a very popular game called Chess. I don't know if anyone, anyone's played it. Uh, in Chess, it is a perfect information game. From turn one, I could theoretically map out every possible move in that game. If I was, if I was the kind of personality who I don't want to take a turn unless I've, I've considered all the ramifications, I will sit down for a game of Chess and then I will die 25 years later because I've done nothing but try to work out the possibilities. One thing, one thing you can do to avoid this in your game is instead of being like, okay, if I do this, then they can do that, I can do that. 
instead of letting people work out every possible branch of your decision tree, you can instead be like, look, you can do this, and then a card's gonna come out, and that'll determine what your options are next turn. You don't know what that card is, you don't know what you're gonna draw, you're hiding future information that people aren't sitting there trying to mentally calculate every possible thing that they can do in your game. Instead, you hit a wall. I'm gonna do this, and, by the, and then when I, when I do that, I will roll four dice, and at that point, I don't know what the next thing I'm gonna do is. Like, I can't know. It, it stops that, unless you've memorized every card in the game and every possible combination of dice. It gives you a point where you're like, I'm gonna do these things, and then I don't know what's gonna happen next, so I can't plan beyond that. It gives you a point of hidden information where you're like, I can plan up to that point, and then not beyond it. Uh, the, there's a few ways you can do this. You can do this with randomness, obviously. Um, I'm gonna go to the Witch's Forest, where I roll a die. What, I, what, what, what that die looks like will determine what I can do next, so I'm just gonna plan to get there and go from there. A more common way is uh, your opponent. I'm gonna do these things, and then, depending on what they do, I'll pick what to do next. Uh, the, I mentioned the term decision tree. Has anyone heard this before? Decision tree uh, is basically a, way, a branching set of options that you have. I didn't make a slide for this, I should have. Um, I use my own game, Scuttle. So Scuttle is a cute little pirate card game. You're trying to be the first one to get 21 points in front of you. Every turn you have two options. You either draw a card or play a card. That's the start of a decision tree. Every single turn you will make that one choice. Draw a card, play a card. Uh, draw a card ends your decision tree. Done. Uh, because at that point you're going to draw a card, you don't know what it is, and you don't get any more actions on your turn. Play a card is the second branch of the decision tree, and that breaks off into I can play this card, this card, this card, or this card. Done. It's a very simple game with a very short decision tree. Has anyone played the game Scythe? Cool. Scythe is my favorite game. I love it. Uh, everyone has a player mat that has four options on it, the one that you're on and three others. On your turn, you can pick one of those options. This is a very, very, very simple start to a decision tree. I have the option of move, I have the option of trade, I have the option of build, let's say. That's not Scythe, but let's say that's it. Move, trade, build, and I know that I don't have anything to build. That cuts off one third of the possible decisions on my turn. The simpler your decision tree is at the top, the less analysis paralysis you're gonna get. Because you're gonna say, I have these options, and that one, no matter what, is just not gonna be good for me. In Scuttle, if I have a hand of 25 cards, I'm not gonna draw a card. That part of the decision tree is locked off. In Scuttle, if I have no, if I have one card in hand and I don't like it, the other half is locked off. I can pretty, I can basically halve my decision tree by being like, ah, look, that general area is not good for me, that one is. Elegant games, modern games more and more have the same shape of every turn. You have a really simple decision tree and then it gets complex crazy. But the first thing you do is you're like, oh, I have one of these options. I can do this thing, this thing, or this thing. And then they all have a bunch of sub options. But more and more a game will say, do one of these three things on your turn. That's your whole turn. You're like, great. I know what I'm doing on my turn. I don't want to do that one. That's stupid. I did that last turn. Uh, I want to do this one. So now I can really start thinking about it. Way reduces analysis paralysis. Uh, second, we had the inability to plan ahead. So the more chaotic your board is, the less you can plan ahead. I played a, I played a prototype here actually that uh, it had three wheels. It was a really cool idea. And then halfway through the game, every player was like, oh, this sounded cool, but it didn't quite work. It, it, the rest of the game was great. But this one thing, it had three wheels. And on your turn, you would turn a wheel and then do two of the touching things from that wheel. By the time it gets around to me, all of those wheels have turned so much and different people are turning different wheels that I can't know what I want to do. 
when it's not my turn, I can't be like, well, I know I'll have this option available to me, so I'll start to think about that. I have no idea what I want to do. Uh, what, what's, what's a... Here's a classic example. Magic the Gathering, the first thing you do on your turn is draw a card. That means I can sit there and I can plan as much as I like, but my turn doesn't real. I can't really start planning my turn until I've drawn. Because until I have that information, I have no idea what the possibilities are. I know what my other cards are, but if I draw a card that completely changes my plan, other person's turn, other person's turn, other person's turn, my turn, I draw and then I start planning my complex turn. If you don't let people plan ahead, their turns are going to be longer, and that means more of a gap between each player's turn. That's downtime. Uh, as well as that, if I can't plan on my turn because I'm waiting for that card draw, so not, as, not only is it taking longer for other people to take their turn, I can't do anything constructive when it's not my turn. Uh, the other thing that... So a lot, of, a lot of modern gamers are sort of... A lot of Euro gamers, I'll say, are anti-dice games. They're like, why would I want to play a dice game? There's two ways... There's two main ways that you can use dice. One is, I go, I go to the witch's cottage and then I roll a dice to see what will happen. And this is sort of the opposite of my analysis paralysis point. You want, you want to balance, uh, basically. If you let them plan the entire game out, they're going to run through every possible option. If you don't let them plan at all, there's nothing they can do on other people's turns. So you want something hard, you want something uh, elegantly between those things. So let, let's say uh, I move to the Witch's Forest and then I roll a dice. Well, if the first thing I do is, is roll a die, I can't really plan my turn. I don't know what information I'm going to have. If, however, we all roll our dice at the start of the turn, has anyone played Dead of Winter or um, Castles of Burgundy? They both use the same system. First thing that happens is around is the dice get rolled and then you go. So it's still dice, it's still randomness, uh, but it's not, it's not, uh, it, it's, it's planning random. Oh fuck, there's a term for it. Pardon my language, I'm gonna swear. I'm Australian. Uh, there's two types of, yeah, there's two types of ways of using dice. There's do a thing and then roll a die, or there's roll a die and then plan what you're gonna do with your result. One of them means that you just can't plan ahead. If I'm like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna battle, I'm gonna battle Arnold, and then if I win, I'll do this. If I lose, I'll do this. If I win a little bit, I'll do this. If I lose a little bit, I'll do this. Uh, you can't know. So you're just like, well, I'll go there and then I'll start making choices. Whereas if I'm like, okay, I rolled and I have really strong armies. So I know if I go, I'll defeat him and then I can start to plan out my turn. I'm giving you two conflicting ideas. It's confusing, I realize. But uh, you, don't, you want people to be able to plan ahead, but not the entire game ahead. <laughs> not caring about other people's turns. There are a few ways to combat this. And this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. A simple one is to have people interact on other players' turns. Uh, Settlers of Catan, you, you roll the die, you do your thing, and then there's a trading phase. You can trade with any other player. So even while it's someone else's turn, I'm like, great, it's his turn, I know he has a bunch of wood and I want to trade with him. I'm actively involved in his turn. So if, I, if, if, it, if my turn ends and I leave the room, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do worse. I've got something to do on his turn. You never want people to be able to walk away from the table at the end of their turn and come back at the start of the next turn because at that point I do walk away from the table, I do it by entering the internet. Uh, another way to avoid this is simultaneous actions. Instead of being my turn, your turn, his turn, my turn, blah blah blah, everyone just has their turn at the same time. This obviously doesn't work for all games, but more and more games you'll find are using it. Um, there's a lot of games that'll have like a simultaneous, you choose your action all at the same time, so that I'm, you know, I'm doing a thing at the same time as you're doing a thing, then you flip and resolve, but you've made the main decisions at the same time that everyone is making a decision. Uh, blind bid is the same thing. We all put our thing in and we, we bid at the same time. Uh, 
And then the last, and this is probably the most common thing, uh, to make me care about someone else's turn, make me invested in what they do. Worker placements are, worker placement games are amazing at this. There is one spot where you can get sheep. I want it. I am watching you like a hawk. Because if you take the sheep spot, I have to plan my whole thing. So I'm like, don't take it, don't take it, don't take it. I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm watching. It's my turn. No one took it. I get it. Or well, someone takes it. And I'm like, oh, well, I was invested in their turn because it changed what I can do. So I'm going to start planning my next turn while the next player has their turn. I have accent. I talk fast. Put your hand up if you have any questions or something I say doesn't make sense. Lastly, and again, this is, this is the one that I see all the time. Long fucking turns. Again, modern games are going in a really specific direction. Instead of taking five actions on your turn, I take one, you take one, you take one, I take one. It's quick, it's snappy. Uh, Scythe again is my favorite game, I love it. Uh, the, the actions are complex. No, let me, let me say that again. The actions are simple but deep. On my turn, I can trade two resources for one resource. That's a very simple thing. That does not take much time, but the ramifications of that are enormous. So on my turn, I trade those resources and then other people have quick turns and it's back to me and I get to make another little short snappy decision. Anything that you can do in a 15 minute turn, you can do in 15 one minute turns. Split up what they're doing, it make, lets you react, lets you pivot, anything to break up those long turns. Uh, at this con alone, I've had four prototype sessions where I've had my turn, planned out my next turn, and then spent 10 minutes just waiting for other people to go because their turns just take forever. Uh, I've, I've given that specific advice about split this turn up into actions to three different, uh, three when I wrote my note here, <laughs> five games since then. Instead of being like, okay, I'm gonna trade this and do this and do this and do this, do one of those things. Next person does one, does one, does one. It's the same amount of information, but it just, it stretches out, well, it, it condenses the amount of time between turns. If my turn takes 15 minutes and everyone else's takes 15 minutes, it is way better to have two minutes between each of my one minute turns than half an hour between my 15 minute turn. Because at that point, I'm not engaged in your game and I want to be, I want to play your game. I really, really do. Uh, and then similar to this is just reduce the number of decisions that people have to make. Turns get shorter when people don't have to, and this relates to analysis paralysis, all ties together. Turns get shorter when I don't have to make 15 decisions. And there's, there's these false decisions that people tend to put into their game. Uh, I played a game about launching a space rocket. And at the end of every single turn, you could assign a worker to the launch phase. You always want to launch rockets. Like, don't make this a thing that you have to manually do. After you turn, the launch phase happens. Then I'm never going like, do I, do I want to launch? Is this a good thing? Make the player's decisions for them. If, it, if, there's a, if there's a thing that is always wrong to do, it should not be an option in the game. Uh, the other reasons that I will check out of your game is if I can tell how it's going to end. If two turns in, I'm like, I don't have a chance at this. Why am I still playing for another 40 minutes? If I don't feel like I'm having an impact on your game, if my choices don't matter, I don't care. I'm not going to play a thing when I could... You know, if, if, if I could... Uh, Snakes and Ladders is a classic example. Any person in Snakes and Ladders can be replaced with a self-rolling die. You don't make choices in that game. There are games when, when you still make choices, but you don't feel the impact of those choices, and that's so important. The first, uh, I've written first player experience. What I mean is the first time someone plays your game, that experience. If halfway through the game I'm like, oh, I did everything wrong, 
Okay, great. Your game, your game lied to me, it feels like. I was fooled by your game. I dislike your game as if it's a person. I don't want to play with someone I don't like. And lastly, this is, this is one that I think people think about a little bit less. Your game needs to be fun to lose. It can't be more fun to lose than it is to win, but you need to make sure that people are having fun even when they're losing. Again, I'm gonna run, I'm gonna run through these. Uh, if I can tell how it's, how it's gonna end, that's a problem. There should be that element of tension right up until the end. Uh, this, this might be a little bit stronger in me than other people because I don't like race games. I don't like games where it's first to seven points. If, I'm at, if I can see that I'm at three points and everyone else is at six, why, why am I here? <laughs> I could leave, I don't care. Uh, there's, a few ways to, there's a few ways to fix this. One is to hide your points. Uh, every time, like Settlers Catan, for example, you have your points that are on the board, but you can also draw points. That guy over there could have two more points than me. I don't know. I'm interested. I could have secret points that no one else knows about. It looks like I'm losing, but maybe I'm not. You can have uh, hidden negative points. Like, I think I'm doing really well, uh, but I, I, think, I think everyone's doing really well, but they might have some secret negative points in their game somewhere. Something that hides the points so I can't just tell. Uh, you can obfuscate this by having unexpected victory conditions. This is a, a classic mainstay of... Um, so, sorry, what I mean by that, unexpected victory conditions is when I don't know exactly how you win. There's a game called Lords of Waterdeep, it's an amazing worker placement game. At the start of the game, everyone is given a se different secret objective. I get double points from uh, Skullduggery missions, you get double points from Arcane missions. So even though I can see how many public points everyone has, at the end, we're going to reveal a bunch of stuff and be like, "Oh man, I thought I was doing so well, but you had you had your secret mission all along." Or like, "It looks like I'm losing, but I know I have these secret points. Is that going to be enough to, to make me win?" So you can obfuscate points, you can obfuscate uh, victory conditions, and you can do that really asymmetrically. Uh, my second game through Jellybean Games is called Dracula's Feast. It's a social, it's a logical deduction game. Everyone has a role that has a completely different victory condition. Well, some of them have a completely different victory condition. Everyone's got the same one goal, but as well as that, my secret goal might be to just find Dracula. If I find Dracula, game over, I win. So I might be like, look, it looks like I'm losing, but I might be on the verge of finding Dracula, and I don't know how close they are to win because I don't know what their victory conditions are. You obfuscate too much, and, it, and you're not going to feel like you have an impact. But if you obfuscate enough, then you feel invested in the game right up until the end. Uh, the last and sort of the least common way of doing this is an unexpected endgame condition. So an unexpected endgame condition is in the game Scythe. As soon as someone gets their sixth star, the game ends. Getting six star doesn't win you the game, but it triggers the end of the game immediately. We can all be on four stars and be like, is someone about to get it? I can get two stars on my turn, bam! Game is immediately over and you're like, ah, I, I was gonna do this thing. I, you know, everyone knew I was gonna win, but I needed to take these two more turns. Uh, unexpected victory conditions, unexpected end game conditions, and hidden points are the three main ways in which you can make people feel like they still have a chance right up until the end of the game, or not even that, just that you can't tell how it's going to end. A lot of games will do this by hiding your earnings as well, and that's different to victory conditions, like, I don't know how much money he has. He could have enough to like buy that final victory condition, I don't know, so I'm going to keep on going with my plan because I don't know how this game is going to end, and so I'm invested until the end. Uh, can't tell if you're having an impact on something. The most common thing that I see in a game that feels like this is when we get to the end of the game and I'm like, oh, I was meant to be doing that all along? Like, that's the trick? And how was I meant to know that? Uh, there's a few ways of, of affecting this. One is to have phases. Has anyone played the game Galaxy Trucker? You all need to go play Galaxy Trucker. It's so good. Um, 
I'm trying to think of other games that do it. Uh, Seven Wonders. Has anyone played Seven Wonders? Yeah. So Seven Wonders is a, is a simultaneous draft, a table draft game, which has three ages. At the end of the first age, you just check how things are going a little bit. At the end of the second age, you check how things are going a little bit. At the end of the third age, you find out who won. Galaxy Trucker, a lot of other games have the exact same format. You do a thing for a bit, and then you go, hey guys, we've done this for a bit. Let's check in. Let's see how we're all going. You've got really low war, so you're actually losing a lot of points. Fortunately, the, the first round is the shortest. It gets, it gets bigger and bigger as you go, so you've got a chance to rectify that, but now you know. It means that when you're playing the game, you're like, am I doing well? Oh, well, I just saw. We just checked. I'm not doing well. I'm glad I know that. I can course correct. Uh, you can have a scoreboard. <laughs> this is a very, very basic a scoreboard. A very basic way of doing it. There's a little th track that tells you how many points you have compared to everyone else. I can see how my actions are impacting my score because I can see them. If everyone has their own like secret score and no one sees other people getting points, you don't know. If there's a score track, I'm like, oh, I think I'm playing well because I can see my little guy go up and it's comparable to yours. There's a lot of prototypes I play where I'm like, I'm doing stuff. Is, is, it, good st is it good stuff? Is it bad stuff? I don't know, I'm just doing it. Like, I have no, way, I have no feedback. You want to have some kind of feedback in your game, whether that's a like end of phase, let's check in, whether it's a scoreboard, you can see your points going up. Uh, another common way is it's, it's so simple, it's so tactile, it's what board games are all about. Let people build stuff. If I'm building a thing, whatever that thing is, I can see it getting bigger. I know I'm doing something because I can see it. Patchwork, you're covering up spots on your board. Settlers of Catan, you're building out your little empire across the island. A lot of games will use this as a way of being like, you want to know how you're doing? Look down. Castles of Mad King Ludwig is great at this. You're like, I know I'm doing well because my castle looks cool. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm having an impact. And that can be totally unrelated to score. I don't even know if I'm doing well, but I know I'm doing something. I'm engaged, I'm having an impact because I'm making something happen. Uh, your first play experience, and this is, this is a huge one for me. There are so many games coming out each day that I, I drove down with my friend Joel. He owns 700 games. The most he's played a single game in the last three years is Splendor, he's played it 12 times. The second most is Scythe, he's played it six times. He plays dozens of games, and yet he, want, he generally doesn't get through a game more than five times. Like, his second most played game in the last three years is six times. Maybe to you that's normal, to me that's crazy, but that is increasingly how the market's working. There's so much stuff coming out. If you don't grab someone in their first play, if you make them feel like an idiot in their first play, you don't get a second play. First, play. first time playing experience, first player sounds like I'm talking about turn order, I'm not. First time playing experience is so vitally important. Here are some ways to make sure that people don't feel dumb playing your game for the first time. Don't ask people to make huge choices before they understand what that choice is. Classic example, first thing in the game, here's two goal cards, pick one, discard the other. Based on what? Like. I haven't played your game, I don't know how this works. Uh, Scythe, again, my favorite game, I'll rave about it for hours, gets around this by saying, here's two gold cards, during the course of this game, you will complete only one. You don't have to choose now, at any point in this game, you can decide which gold card you want to start working towards. Don't give people choices that are meaningless to them. Uh, old games are, are classic, like old, older games um, are, are beautifully horrible for this. They're so terrible. There's a game, uh, there's a series called the 18xx train games. They're these eight, nine hour train games. 1830 is the most famous, the most popular one. 
the first thing you do in 1830 is a complex auction to pick your company that will determine not only what company you start with, but how much money you spend and your fate for the entire game. That mechanic never appears again. You don't, you don't have auctions throughout the game. You do this once, throw that mechanic away, and then you can lose before you've built a single train. You can overpay for a crappy company. Everyone else has still got money in the bank and better companies than you. And your first time playing, it's, it's impossible to know what to do. Don't make people make massive decisions before they know how that works. And that works on a smaller scale as well. If you've got three phases to your round, the first one is pick a thing, the second one is do a thing, the third one is do a third thing, and picking the thing, that's the worst example. Do a thing, then a thing, then a thing. We're all good, okay, we're on board. Uh, if, if you've got your three options, one of which is um, decide what, what person you're gonna have as your leader for this entire phase. You pick a leader and then you're like, oh, this guy feeds off bananas. There are no bananas in this phase. You've made a huge decision that'll impact your entire game without having the enough information to make that decision. Uh, other ways to just destroy someone's first play experience is to let them, is, sorry. One thing that a game does to give you a poor first game experience is not really guide you. I was talking about short-term goals earlier, that's a good one. If you're like, I don't, I don't know what I wanna do, but I know I wanna build a train. How much does a train cost? Great, I'm gonna get the stuff for that train. That's an easy way of doing it, short-term goals. Another thing is secret goals. If my secret goal is to collect Skullduggery quests, I don't know what else is happening, but when I see Skullduggery quests, I'm like, oh, I want that. I will put more effort into getting that because I want it, and then I'll get rewarded for it. You're giving people a little bit of a guide as to what they should be doing to do well, and they don't feel like idiots at the end when they're like, oh, why did I? Well, not only do they don't feel like idiots, that your first turn, you're like, what do you want to do? I don't know. What, like, I'll buy a banana, I guess? Bananas seem cool. Give them a goal. Give them something concrete to work towards, and that way they're like, okay, I don't know how anything else works. I don't know how victory conditions work. I don't even really know how turn order works. But I know that I want that train because my card says every train I get is a super train. So simple. Uh, don't overwhelm them with information. Like, all of this is a balancing act. But if you're finding that people are on their first turn being like, ah, I don't know. Uh, does anyone here, is anyone here into co-op games? I'm talking so much about co-op games lately. Has everyone played Pandemic? Cool, I'm gonna talk about Pandemic. Pandemic, you're a team of medical people trying to shut down disease centers, or shut down disease centers, trying to shut down diseases around the world before they take over cities. Pandemic starts the game by being like, fu, fu, fu. these areas are rough. You might not know how anything else is, but you know, look, we gotta go there. Like, we gotta go in there and fix that. You get something to do on the first turn. So many co-ops I play, they don't give you a fire to put out. First turn, you're like, look, in the end, you wanna build your airplane and escape, uh, first turn, I, I guess I want to build an airplane. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what's going to get me good. Do I want to be engine building at this point? Do I want to just go and build an airplane? Give them a problem to solve. If you have an early problem to solve, you have something to do. Uh, Uwe Rosenberg games are great at this. They'll be like, hey, in two turns time, you need to feed all these people. You have no food. Before you think about anything else, solve that. Feast for Odin is another one of my favorite games. Gives you a board that's just a pile of negative ones. If the end of the game, if you end the game right now, you'd have minus a hundred points. <laughs> First thing you do is you're like, I want to stop these. These are bad. I want to solve this problem straight away. Uh, seed the first turn. If people are, if in your first game, the correct thing to do is always get two wood and then two sheep and then build a little house for your sheep. 
don't make people learn this by screwing up. First time I play, oh, I'm gonna get a banana. Everyone else built sheep and, and a house and now they're like five points ahead and I can never possibly win. Don't let people screw up on your first turn. Just give them a house. If the correct thing to do is start by building a house, give them a house to start with. They don't have to worry about that. Now they can go off and solve some kind of interesting problem. And lastly, and this is again, I, I see this in way too many prototypes. Don't let someone knock themselves out of the game with a single move. <laughs> if, there is, if there is four spots to go, one is get a banana, one is build a, build a house for your sheep, one is collect five gold, and the other one is kill your entire family and go to jail for the rest of the game. Don't make that a spot. Because <laughs> some players will be like, that's weird, that seems like a bad thing to do. What happens? Oh, I'm out of the game. That's a really obvious blatant example, but there are so many games where I, I play a prototype and the creator's hanging over my shoulder, and he says, oh no, you don't want to do that. If you do that, you're dead for the rest of the game. Then don't let me do that. That should not be a possibility. I shouldn't be like, I want to do this. Well, you can, but you're not going to win and there's no point in playing the next 40 minutes. Don't let people knock themselves out of game with a single dumb mistake. Lastly, don't make your game boring to lose. Again, you want it to be fun to win more than anything, but if I'm losing and have a really miserable time, I'm, it, if you have four players and one is winning and three is losing, three of those people are never gonna play your game again if it's not fun and interesting to lose. There's a few ways you can do this. Uh, the best one and the, the hardest to accomplish but simplest to observe is to, it's gonna sound really dumb, bear with me, make your game super fun to play. Sure, problem solved, right? No, like, I mean, don't make, your gun an don't make your game an interesting, fun puzzle. I mean, whatever the thing that you're doing in that game, that needs to be fun to do. There's a dexterity game called Ice Cool. Has anyone heard of it or played it? It's, it's brilliant. You're, you're flicking penguins around a thing and you can make them do flips. You can flick a thing and make it do a flip and it doesn't get you any points, but god damn, is it fun to do? <laughs> like, I don't care if I'm winning, I did a flip. Check that out. Uh, this is, you need to learn what makes what is fun to do, um, but some things is it's fun to build stuff. It's really fun to build a little thing. Spatial puzzles, they're fun to do. Uh, again, Castles Making Ludwig, I love. You build a castle and all the rooms are different sizes and you want to put them together in interesting ways. Even if I'm coming dead last, even if I have no chance of winning, if on my turn I get to pick up a thing and do a fun like tactile puzzle, I am going to have a good time with your game. As a publisher, I look for games where the inherent thing that you do, the main thing that you're doing again and again every turn, is fun. The two steps are find something that's fun to do and then reward the players for doing it. Um, Potion Explosion is, is a Simon game where it's, it's, it's basically a match three game in physical form. There's a big row of marbles, they, it's a marble game. Uh, and you pull out a marble and if you make the same color marbles click together, you take them all, which makes more click together. It's fun, it's fun to do. Like, I don't care if I'm losing, if I have a cool move, I'm still invested and engaged in the game. I've got a list of examples here, like seriously, uh, uh, Patchwork, Castle Maxine, Ludwig, Ice School, Junk Art. Junk Art is another dexterity game. Like, dexterity games get a bit of a pass because they're just fun to do. But uh, have a look at your favorite game and work out what is actually, like why you love playing that game. What is the fun thing that you're doing in Scythe it's building an efficiency engine. That doesn't sound like it's inherently fun, but as the game goes on, it rewards you for doing everything. What's that? You did that thing? Great, here's a reward. And not only is that reward good because you're getting more victory points, it lets you do more stuff. The more stuff you do in Scythe, the more stuff you get to do until you're building this crazy machine. Engine builders are great for that because you're like, turn one, oh yeah, cool, I, I, I sent a guy out to have a little dance. 
turn 10, okay, my circus is performing here, I'm doing this, and like, I've got the same number of actions, but each one's just doing more. Make your game fun, and then reward people for doing it. Uh, other ways to make the game less boring to lose is a thing called rubber banding, which is the further you are ahead, the harder it is to do everything. Again, it shouldn't be not fun to lose, but if I've got 20 soldiers and you've got one, I should be spending a lot more time making sure my soldiers are fed and happy than you are. If it's just free, like, if, I've got, if I'm going with one soldier, I'm out. Like, okay, cool. We both, uh, we both pay the same one gold, whereas you have 20 guys and I have one. Whereas if you have 20 guys and you're paying 100 gold, I have one guy and I'm paying 4 gold. Yeah, you have more guys and you're doing more stuff, but you're spending most of your stuff just main, on maintaining your army, whereas I am get to be cool and sleek and little. Uh, so that's rubber banding. Rubber banding is when you, I'm going to say punish, it's not quite the right word, when you punish the winner for doing too well, which lets everyone else catch up. Uh, win harder mechanics is sort of the opposite of this. This is terrible. Um, any, most economic simulation games fall into this because real life is a win harder game. Uh, there's, there's an entrepreneur called Hank Green. He's one of the Vlogbrothers, a YouTube celebrity. He runs a company for 40 hours a week and he has investments in the bank. He makes about twice as much from his bank investments than he does from running a very successful company. He is win winning harder. He has money, so he makes more money than you can make without money. Don't make your game do this. If someone's way ahead, they shouldn't be able to get even further ahead and further ahead and further ahead and further ahead. As soon as you start slipping back, you shouldn't be like, well, I'm losing and it's gonna be an uphill struggle for the rest of the game. It's boring, it's not fun to lose. Okay, I'm going to talk about some more kind of uh, actual shape of your game stuff, um, which is, has anyone here ever seen a movie? One of you. Okay, cool. Well, so, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I am a writer as well, and screenplays are very heavily formulaic, and they have what's called a three-act structure. I'm not going to go into great detail, but basically, as the thing goes on, it gets more intense, until right towards the end where it drops off quite harshly and returns you to your beginning state. Uh, Titanic starts a bit slow, we don't know who these people are. Titanic's an amazing movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go watch it right now. It's so good, people shit on it. It's amazing, it's actually really good. I, I can feel the respect dipping in the room, but trust me. Uh, Titanic at the start, we don't really know what's happening. About halfway through, like, oh, they've met each other in their love. Oh, there's conflict by the end. A ship is sinking into the ocean and everyone is dying. And then everyone dies and things are calm again <laughs> because there's only four people left alive. It's a classic example of the three-act structure. How can you incorporate this into your game? Great question. There's a few ways. I'll, I'll point out that there is a, a certain structure of game which is a very, very flat game where you do a thing and you keep on doing it the exact same way every turn until someone wins. Um, this, this is not the kind of game I'm talking about. This is very rare. That only really happens when you've got a thing that's so much fun to do that you don't care about adding other stuff. You just want people to do that same thing 10 times in a row, and then that's the game, done. I'm talking about your classic Euros, Ameritrash, abstract games, everything else follows this same structure. Where at the start of the game, there's actually not that much you can do. As the game goes on, more and more options become available to you, and then right towards the end, when you're like, oh crap, this game is about to end, you still have those options, but the only things that are worth doing are the things that get you victory points. Uh, does, does that roughly make sense? So that's, that's a way that this exact film structure happens in games with options. It also happens in games where you don't have options, such as um, the game The Resistance. Uh, has everyone heard of or played The Resistance? Social deduction game, very, very, very well done. That does have a bit of rising action in that, like at first there's two guys on the mission, then three, then eventually four, and then it actually ducks down again to three. This follows that structure in that sense. 
But the main thing that you get from resistance is information. Over the course of the game, that information builds and builds and builds and builds until right towards the end, uh, you're like, you find out whoever it is, and then there's a little bit more game after that. And that's when there's, the information has gone, like the hidden information has gone way down, but there's still a little, little bit more game. It's that exact same structure. Uh, tension is a com common one. There's tension and it's building and it's building and it's building and then it's gone. So a game with, um, uh, oh, my Mac's about to die. Uh, okay, I'm gonna skip forward to the next slide. Um, this is Feast for Odin. This is my second favorite game of all time. It is a worker placement game. There are 61 spots to put your worker. It is a worker placement game with 61 places from the first turn. No more come out, that's the whole game. How can that follow the same structure of rising action. Well, here's the thing, I went through and I looked, these are the only options that are actually available on your first turn. You cannot take the other options. There's still 61 on the board, but really there's only these ones. And this is the only options that are actually any good at the start of the game. <laughs> you can do these ones that I'm, that I'm flicking on and off. They will do nothing for you at the start of the game. They're useless. So at the start of the game, this is what you've got. Then the game goes on, you get more stuff, then you've got all this. And then at the end of the game, these are the only options that are actually worth doing at all. I went through, everything else gets you literally nothing towards winning the game. On your last turn, if you're not doing one of these, you're throwing away a guy. Uh, so you'll find that you want to make sure that your game follows this. I played a game literally right before this. I ran from there to here. It was a nifty little game. It, was, uh, it, had, it had a game, you played it, and then you played a second time, you played a third time, added up scores at the end. I played it once, and I was like, look, if we're gonna play this twice more, something needs to be rising. There needs to be something different in the second one, as well as it was just add up your scores from the three. They didn't relate at all. Uh, we published a game called Lady and the Tiger. It's an 18 card game that came with five games. Five different games that could be played with these same 18 cards. One of them followed that structure. You do a thing, you do it again, you do it a third time. But we made one rule in the game change so that the first time you draw one card every turn. Second game, you draw two, two cards every turn. The third time you play the game, you draw three every turn. It's just something to give you that feeling of progression and rising action uh, because people can feel it when it's not there. If you have a flat game, if you have, if you have a, a flat line, it's a flat game and people are not gonna be engaged throughout the whole thing. That's all the notes I have, uh, but I thought I'd open up if anyone had any questions about structure or shapes of your game or how I'm so good looking, anything you got. How do you control the ability to plan in a turn-based game that only has two players? So, have you played Twilight Struggle? Uh, that is, it was the number one game on Board Game Geek for a very long time. It is a turn-based game with two players, uh, but each player has a hand of cards. So, I can, it has short-term goals and long-term goals. As you'll, like, once you start looking at it, you'll find every game has short-term goals and long-term goals. So I can be like, look, I want to accomplish one of these three goals. You can only do one thing on your turn, so I know on my turn I'll be able to move towards A, B, or C. Does that make sense? You give them multiple things that they can do, so that they're not just like, well look, I want to do this one thing, if he, if he means that I can't, what am I going to do? Uh, you give them multiple paths, again, not too many, you don't want to overwhelm them, but you give them stuff so that you're like, look, okay, if you go after, if you go after uh, the Middle East, then I'll do my turn on Britain. If you go after Britain, I'll do my turn on Africa, so on and so forth. Give them multiple paths. Does that make sense? Yes. Does that answer your question? Yes. Cool. Anyone else? I can talk forever, so uh, 
I just thought, if you have a question, put your hand up. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, about shapes and games, games come in uh, five, there's five layers to your game. There's the whole game, then there's a phase, and that's the thing I'm talking about of the three things. Galaxy Trucker does it, Seven Wonders does it, where you play the game, you play the game again, you play the game a third time. Generally stuff from the first one will build into the second phase, will build into the third phase. In Seven Wonders, you build some little buildings. Second phase, you build using those buildings, bigger buildings. Third thing, you're building your wonders. Uh, Galaxy Trucker doesn't do that. Galaxy Trucker just resets. After you've played Galaxy Trucker the first time, you throw it all away and you go again. Throw it away, go again. At the third one, you add up the scores. And you might think, well, hang on, how does that, how does that build? Because the first time you're building this little tiny ship, second one a decent sized ship, third time you're building a massive ship. So there's your game, there's phases, not all games have phases, a lot do. Then there's rounds, rounds are broken up into turns, turns are broken up into actions. Try to, if you've got a prototype that you're not sure why people are disengaging, try to break it up and see if you have phases, turns, uh, rounds, actions. And the more small you can make a single turn, so like, like I said, I like a turn where it's one action. If my turn is not, do this, this, this. If my turn is a single action, then it means the game is constantly, constantly going. Uh, if you're finding that people are disconnected about halfway through, then be like, okay, have I not rewarded them enough for doing whatever they did? That's when you want to introduce your phases. That's when you want to be like, hey, you've been doing well, great. End of phase, have some points. People like getting points. <laughs> I was talking about inherent fun. You know what's inherently fun? Doing a thing and being rewarded for it. You need people to be able to tangibly get that reward though. Yep. Scythe is one of my favorite games too. How do you feel about the fact that there are so many elements in the game that sometimes first player experiences? I have no idea what most of these do. So, uh, Jay, that's a great question. Um, Scythe is a, um, I think we're recording this, so I'm just going to repeat your question even though we all heard it. Uh, Scythe is a great game. Yep, agreed. How do you feel about the fact that your first time experience in Scythe is often not very good? So, Jamie is a brilliant designer. Uh, he, he's so good. I, I'm, I'm so impressed by his stuff. He has worked really hard. He's aware of that. He's so aware of that. That that game comes with a whole little stack of cards that says, first time playing, take this card. And that really forcibly gives you those short-term goals. Scythe, Scythe ha, uh, uh, there's a podcast, um, the board, design, board Game Design Roundtable, something like that. Jamie was on it, and he just talked about the development of Scythe from start to finish. And he said that the objective cards inside are specifically so that you have a short-term goal. Your long-term goal is to get the stars and win, but it gives you something little to aim for in the meantime. For your first experience, he's broken down that even more. So you get this little card and it says, first time playing, try this. It's not saying you're gonna win by doing this, it's not saying this is the correct strategy. It's just like, hey, this is overwhelming. <laughs> there is so much going on, take this card. Okay, on your first turn, try to do this. Do an action that no one else has done yet. That's the simplest of little short-term goals that anyone can do. My mum could sit down and be like, do something no one's done yet. Okay, well, you did this, so I'll do that. Then the second turn is like, second turn, uh, try to take an action that you haven't taken yet. Again, like, it, it's, it's such a little short-term goal, but it means that your first game, you're not like, I don't know what to do. There is everything to do. You've got a card that literally tells you what to do. Uh, try, to, try to do something no one else has done. Try to do something you haven't done. Then, like, I think it's third or fourth turn, it's like, uh, Scythe boards split into top actions and bottom actions. When you choose a chunk, you do the top, then the bottom. It says, try to, in the next few turns, do the top and the bottom at this, on the same turn. Try to do that. It's just another little short-term goal. By the time you get to the end of this card, which I think runs you through the first six turns, you're most of the way through a game, and without it ever being overwhelming, you've seen how every part of the game works. You're not going to win your first game of Scythe, 
I mean, someone will if you're all first-time players, but you're not going to feel like you did something well in your first game of Scythe, but you're also not going to be like, I didn't know what to do at any point. I felt lost. I didn't know what anything did. It breaks it up to you in little bite-sized chunks. So that's an, that's an example of where the game itself hasn't really solved that, but the designer has been aware of that and solves it on top of that. The second factor with Scythe <laughs> is that it's a $100 game. Uh, and so people who have bought Scythe and have a $100 game in their house, they're going to play it twice. <laughs> it's a barrier to entry. So you're like, I want to play this game. Do I want to play it? Yeah. If, if you backed it on Kickstarter, which tens of thousands, hundred was it uh, four, ten thousand, some crazy number of thousand people did, then they, they backed it without playing it, arrived at their house, they can have a bad experience as long as the second experience is really good or the third one. Uh, I'm playing Anachrony at the moment. I say at the moment because we played half a game. I came to Metatopia. We're going to go home and play the other half. Uh, so I'm literally halfway through. As I'm talking to you, I'm halfway through a game of Anachrony. And I'm halfway through being like, I've clearly fucked this game. Like, I have no chance. But what you're doing is so inherently fun. I'll, I'll briefly explain. If you haven't heard of it, Anachrony is a worker placement game with a timeline. On your first turn, you can be like, I want these five things for free. That's great. You get them. On a future turn, you have to travel back in time and give yourself those things. It's fun at Christmas to receive a present. In Anachrony, first turn, you get presents. It's also super fun to give a present. Like, a big part of Christmas traditions is sitting there and being like, open up the thing I got you. Anachrony lets you get a present from yourself and then give that present to yourself. So you give it and you're like, I remember how happy I was when I sent this administrator back in time. I'm, it's the dumbest thing, but it's inherently fun to give yourself a present from the future. <laughs> uh, any other questions? Yep. Do you have any uh, recommendations of ways to prevent players from ganging up on each other? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, how do you prevent players from ganging up on each other? So a lot of people will use players ganging up as a way to inherently do a rubber banding effect. Rubber banding is what I was saying where like the leader's doing worse. In a lot of games, the designers will be like, well, they're doing worse because everyone will pick on them. Done. Take that. Like, I designed take that game, so I'm well aware of this phenomenon. Uh, Scuttle, the one I was talking about earlier, if someone's winning, the way it balances is everyone else stops them from winning. Uh, so having said that, in a heavier game, I don't think that's okay. I think you need some inherent rubber bending material. Uh, so if you find that people are ganging up on each other, You've got to see, A, what the reward is for that. Um, I've, I've got a design that I'm kind of, I've been working on for a while where the, it, it's an asymmetrical game. It's one versus three, and the one player earns points depending on how many negative points the other people have. That's a weird explanation, but just, just run with it. So uh, basically, I win based on how unhappy the other players are. I get to control also to make them unhappy. The correct strategy for me is to pick one player and be like, dude, you're gonna be miserable. So the way to balance that is instead of, uh, instead of having there to be a great reward for picking on someone, make it a lesser reward. Like, if people are constantly ganging up on someone who's weak, then you've made it too, too much fun <laughs> to gang up on that person. If someone's behind, everyone else shouldn't be like, well, let's pounce. Again, this is why simulation is a bad goal for a game, because in real life, that's what absolutely happens. You know, The dying gazelle is the one that gets eaten by the other gazelles in this example. Um, in real life, not other gazelles, but it would be lines. Uh, so yeah, your, your, your two issues are A, you probably don't have an inherent rubber banding so people have to do it themselves or it's too lucrative to pick on someone. Uh, you want to make it easy to pick on the strong and non-rewarding to pick on the weak. Does that make sense? Answer your question? So. You know, going off of that, do you know of any games that 
actually just directly reward you for like having beneficial relations with each other player. Yeah, oh absolutely. No, this is this is a thing that's coming out more and more. Have you heard of a game called Between Two Cities? Brilliant. It's published, of course, by Stonemaier Games, which is run by Jamie Stegmaier, but he didn't design it. It's by uh, Ben Rossett and Matthew O'Malley. This is one of the cleverest ideas I've ever heard of. It is a competitive game, so there's only one winner, where you are scored, uh, where you're building a city on the left and a city on the right. So let, let's, say, let's say us five, the four in, in this row and me are playing. I'm building a city with you. You're building a city with him. You're building a city with him. You're building a city with him. And you're building a city with me. So I have two cities. We all have two cities. It's called Between Two Cities. Your score at the end of the game is based on whichever is your worst city. It is, a, it is a competitive game where the winner is whoever is best at playing cooperative games. I want to collaborate with you to build the best city that I can and with you to build the best city that I can. You are directly rewarded for working well with others. Uh, as well as that, it's, there's a game coming out from Greater Than Games called Home Crafters, I think. It's a sequel to Brewcrafters. That seems to be, I don't know how that works, but that's a new mechanic in that. Uh, but yeah, if you look for it, there are games where, have you heard of The Prisoner's Dilemma? Prisoner Dilemma is a, is a classic kind of math problem where there's two prisoners. If they rat on each other, they both go to jail for, I don't know the numbers, I'm going to say 10 years. If neither of them talk, they both go free. If one of them rats on the other, but not vice versa, uh, then he goes free and the other guy gets uh, uh, 10, uh, 20 years or something like that. Right, yeah, so, okay, if no one rats, they both go to jail for three years. If one dubs on the other, he goes free, and the other guy gets ten years. And if they both dub on each other, they both get seven years, something like that. So, in that, in that situation, I am rewarded for working with you if you also work with me. If I, if I work with you and you betray me, I'm screwed. So, that, that, that is an example of a game where working together does reward you, but it's risky. Uh, there's a game coming out from my company, Jellybean Games, called Village Pillage, which is Prisoner's Dilemma meets, meets Scissor Paper Rock. You're playing a card against both opponents. If you both play farms, great. Everyone, you know, if I play a farm, you play a farm, great. If you play an army and I play a farm, I'm screwed. <laughs> you trample my army, you take all my stuff. So it's Prisoner's Dilemma meets Scissor Paper Rock, simultaneous play. It's very cool and fun. Questions? Oh, we're hitting the end, so I'll take uh, any other questions people have, or I'll, I'll just share a fun design tip I learned lately. So I was reading Uwe Rosenberg, who did Agricola, Feast for Odin, Patchwork, Le Havre, every second game ever made. Uh, I was reading his designer's diaries for Agricola, and I learned this thing. It has nothing to do with the shape of the game. I just thought it was really cool. He said when he was designing uh, the classic farmer worker placement game, he made sure that each resource would read uh, or sheep, etc., has at least two uses. There is nothing in that game that does one thing and one thing only. If you have a game where you're like, look, you want to get your sto stones... Uh, my computer's died, so I'm sorry, you can't see that slide anymore. Um, if you have a game where your sheep are good for shearing and they don't do anything else, give them a second use. You'll find it cuts down on the stuff that you need and it ties your game together in a really cool way. I've just learned this, I've been designing for years, and now I'm looking at every game that I'm working on and being like, oh, uh, Pandemic, that work, cooperative game I was talking about earlier, every city card has, I think it's five uses, but really it's two. You can use it to move, or you can use it to interact. They all do two things. The cubes, they're threats that you can destroy, or you can collect them to cure your stuff. Everything in, in your kind of medium to, to heavyweight games you'll find does at least two things. It's really cool. Anything else? 
Cool. Thank you guys so much for coming. I really enjoyed this, and you're all good-looking people. Well done. <laughs>